This is the Wandering Berry Center podcast. I'm Brian. Over there's Alex. Hello. Um, there's some pretty cool space news. You were talking about, I don't know much about this one, but the uh, internet plan or the internet satellites that Tesla or SpaceX actually. Yeah, Elon I'm assuming Musk. it's SpaceX. Yeah. yeah, that's all you need to know. Yeah, yeah I don't know kind of details on the project and timelines and when it's supposed to be completed and how many satellites but the i guess the gist of it is a pretty intensive network of satellites launch low orbit satellites um and together they'll they'll help provide free internet to every spot on the globe is how i understand it he's got such altruistic ideals and i really really like that and i'm happy that someone is pushing for that kind of thing yeah i just i fear that he's taking on too much yeah and sometimes he's allowed to do things that maybe he shouldn't i mean do you seen kind of the current status of the whole hyperloop system no the tunnels under los angeles i, I thought you were going to bring up the tunnels yeah so real quick the the tunnels they the city of la or the, the larger incorporated space of la whatever it is mm-hmm. um a highly quake prone you know it's right on a fault line yeah right they basically just let elon musk tunnel underneath the city mm-hmm. at, at, you know basically doing what he pleases i mean there's a purpose and everything but you know i just found that so shocking so what is it what's is up with kind of crazy well so the original idea with the tunnels were that there was going to be basically this um, I don't know if it was maglev or what, but basically some sort of um, moving platform in the tunnels where people would drive their Teslas onto it. And I believe there would be multiple Teslas able to fit on this thing, or even if it was just one, but it was a... Inside the tunnel, there's a platform that you drive onto, and it zooms you to the next spot. So then the next iter- the first iteration of it working, like a working prototype that we saw, was about a mile long. And what it actually was is these wheels that were attached to the outside of the Tesla that kind of folded down and basically acted like a roller coaster on a track hmm. inside the tunnel. So it was like this extra little set of wheels that, you know, kind of kept the car uh, on the track. And they took journalists for rides and everything and everybody said the ride quality was horrible it was scary and just not first of all it's not even close to the original plan was... and then i guess oh, good, go ahead. good good oh i guess even now currently the the status is that we've lost those wheels and it's really just a pavement um or a concrete tube with a flat spot on the bottom that you can drive a car through <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna okay. So the the wheel thing. I was gonna ask: Is it the the are the Tesla's wheels, the car that you're driving? Are they actually uh, turning in that original version of it, or the uh, the original the second iteration? Version? Yeah, yeah. I think you still have to steer, or maybe the car steers for you. It probably uses its autopilot software and, and sensors to navigate the tunnel for you, and that still may be the case. That might be the the goal, but. I never realized that the whole plan from the beginning was like a Tesla centric, like car mo- uh, mover. I thought I thought they were building a like vacuum 
So what other people are doing in, in other places uh, and traditionally or what we call a hyperloop usually is a imagine a tube that's going between wherever um, and it's a maglev train running through this tube and the yeah. really crazy thing is that it's a vacuum in the tube so the train has no air resistance and they can go stupid fast uh, maybe yeah. okay so maybe there's two separate concepts then and one's the hyperloop and because you're right i do actually remember seeing some concept with like people in it sitting yeah that okay that's what would have made more sense to me but elon you crazy so then so okay so maybe that's the hyperloop is one thing and then um because this this whole thing that i'm describing is from the boring company that he has right no those those, that's the same company as as far as what's what's digging underneath la but (laughs) which is a scary thing all on its own right kind of um they're all just waiting for the next big one. Like people from, I work with a few people from California and Mm -hmm. they just, they joke about it. Like, you know, you'll be walking around California. You'll, you'll feel tremor and everybody just pauses for a second. And it's like, Oh, is this the big one? (laughs) Is this it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Um, a little stressful. Extremely. The, uh, the other bit of space news, we're a little late to the game. It was uh, big news. Uh, maybe a month and a half ago or so. But mm-hmm. I had covered it in one of our very first episodes uh, where uh, we were attempting to essentially take a picture of the black hole or a oh, black yeah. hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what we were waiting for was basically they were working on a computer algorithm and trying to process all the data because taking a picture is it's more like we were building a picture of it. Rather than right, actually taking right. a picture is a better way to think about it. Yeah. So they finally finished, uh, like six months after they were planning to, which is actually pretty good in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's technically it's a rendering of a black hole, but it, yeah, there's a lot of like um, not necessarily assumptions, but things that you have to infer from the, the right. data, right, to right. kind of make it actually something visible, right. But the cool thing is it did confirm sort of our, we had previously, before this moment, we had um, guessed at what a black hole was mm-hmm. and how it acted. And with all the data and whatnot and what they're using to put this picture together confirms a lot of our understandings about black holes, event horizons, and, and their gravitational fields, and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. So it was a huge advancement uh, and a huge confirmation of, or at least uh, more evidence for the current theories on black holes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah, the whole the way that you end up with that like ring of light, almost the way the image looks, it almost yep. looks like a, a coffee stain. Yeah, <laughs> I yep. watched a video on how that, um, you know, the guy was doing a, a pretty good job of explaining it simply of how the light is transferred and how the gravity manipulates the light and everything basically from every direction, how you end up with that type of image. And I can't necessarily repeat it because it's over my, you know, head as far as a, a good understanding of it. But one thing that stuck out to me is I guess if you were in theory to stand at, you know, on the edge of the, um, the black hole, I guess where the gravity is 
starting to bend the light, if you were like at that point, you would be able to see the back of your own head because what? of the way the light bends around the sphere and comes back around. Like you would technically be looking at the back of your own head. Jeez. <laughs> and there's no like you could never get close to I mean, it's black holes are so scary and crazy. It's definitely hard to even think about. But it is it is kind of wild that it actually is like a black hole. Expected. It is actually yeah. a circular at least this particular one, it's a circular uh we don't know what's in the middle of it, obviously. I was going to say, we still don't really know what happens if, you know, you throw a rock inside it. of it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the next thing, is we're just going to shoot a rocket at it and see what happens. That'd be pretty fun. That would be really cool. Yeah, just put a bunch of sensors on it and just fire it and send data back as I long hope, as you I can. hope that you get, yeah, something yeah. other than just it stops. Right. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah, space news. Um, oh, actually, real quick, about the whole the thing we originally started talking about with the satellites. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the story I heard that, you know, regards to that recently is that astronomers are having a hard time because there are so many satellites up there. Yes. That it's, like, causing, you know, it's changing the way the night sky looks, in a, in a sense. It's pretty um, disgusting that we have a legitimate trash problem, not only on our own planet, but we have Circling literally built it. yes we have literally built a uh a trash ring like the rings of saturn like we that's we have mm-hmm. trash floating around our and it's so oh, bad yeah. it's so bad that you have to uh, if you're going to launch a rocket you have to time you you have to pick your launch even more carefully than you otherwise would have because you might hit something on the way up right that's a, yeah i've heard that as well that's pretty nutty yeah and actually, the other day, well, the other week, um, I want to say India. I think it was India. Um, they tested an anti-satellite missile. And that is cool and all, I guess. But everybody got mad at them because what happens when you blow up a satellite in orbit? Well, you just you just sent trash in every single direction. Mm-hmm. Um and they came back and said, well, you guys did it too, which is true. We have tested our own anti-satellite missile, uh, the U.S., mm-hmm. that is. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're... We suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody's got a... Elon better get up there and clean it up. So, I don't know. He feels more... I feel like he's more obligated than me, so... <laughs> he he's, pe- appears to have taken the mantle, so... <laughs> I'll let him, I'll let him have it. I didn't tell him to put himself in that position, but no. I'll hold him accountable. Yeah. All right. I think, All right. You uh, want to get going? You, yeah, you're up first. All right. Um, so this topic actually is kind of a spinoff from another topic uh, from a few weeks back. At this point, uh, we had talked about symbiotic animal relationships. Yep. If you recall. Um, and then within that, we talked a little bit about the cleaner wrasse, the fish. Yeah. And at the time, it was very, very recent, but that was the first fish, and I still think maybe the only, the only fish to have passed the mirror test, uh, which is the kind of common test of figuring out, you know, if a animal is self-aware or is able to, you know, 
distinguish itself from others. Right. I believe they have, um, like, with chimps, they put, like, a red dot on the chimp's forehead. Exactly. You can and kinda, yeah. does it understand that that mm-hmm. is itself in the mirror? Right. And they've also... It's kind of fucked up. Um, they have uh, just... To observe, like, wi- completely wild animals, they've just put mm-hmm. mirrors in, like, a jungle and, like, waited for a <laughs> leopard to come up and see what's up. <laughs> and, of course, the leopard has no idea, so it starts flipping out and attacking. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah kind of, it starts getting... Kind of a dick move. Anyway. It is. Um, actually, so... The the topic at you know at large is actually animal cognition. So the oh, mirror nice, test is nice. one part of that, but um, I think it's really natural and a common curiosity to think you know what's going on inside of the brains of all of these creatures around us. Sure. You know, ask ex- yourself how how smart are they or whatever. Or, you know, does my cat know what I'm saying when I tell it to stop pooping <laughs> on the bathroom floor or something? <laughs> Like, no, no, it does not. You know, especially in in this time when we have pets in the house, you wonder if your cat understands what you're talking about or your dog or whatever. Um, so I think going... Actually, and, and before I move on, it's... I think that's kind of like where it, where it starts. That's basic question is like, oh, can an animal understand me or, or how smart is it? But if you start looking a little further, I think... Um, you start to wonder, like, does it even make sense to ask that question? Like, is the animal or the creature in question even thinking about something in the, a similar way where you can compare its intelligence to ours? You know what I mean? Like, is it I, even yeah. comparable? I was going to say... Could be, what... It could be smart, but by a completely different metric. Right. I was going to say, when, when we're talking about, like, communicating with the cat, mm-hmm. you have to you have to change how you communicate. It's never going to understand concepts that, um, other than maybe eating and going to the bathroom or whatever. But yeah, like, like who knows that it even considers it has the same frame of reference for the world as we do. It probably does yeah, not. You have no idea what it's actually like, what it's actual experiences are being interpreted. Right. Um, yeah. And it's actually, interesting side note um we just brought the cat over here into the new house from the old house where it's lived its entire life just today oh and yeah <laughs> so this is actually very relevant um and the the cat didn't no freaking out no didn't appear to be scared necessarily but after kind of like so what we did is we just so far she's just staying in the bedroom she doesn't have access to the rest of the house so just one room to the, to start yeah. Um, she kind of smelled around a little bit. Obviously, we brought stuff over that was hers, so she's kind of got that reference. But so she kind of walked around for a minute, and then she found out how to get under the bed, and that's where she's been since, <laughs> which is not, <laughs> which is not uncommon. No, it's no. actually very much expected behavior. But and she's not like freaking out under there. She's just laying under there, just I think just confused. And I think what's going on is an animal like that its intelligence per se is probably mostly based on patterns and and you know its surroundings so right she's probably just really confused so extremely certain there are certain things that are similar or that she's learned to recognize like obviously myself and and us and certain things that we brought around that she 
can smell and remember or whatever from that pattern, but now all of a sudden everything that those items are contained in is just different. Do you <laughs> so know she's... if the people before you had pets? Probably not. And, th- and that you don't know. Like, uh, so you just moved into like this house. Like where we got the, when she was a kitten? No, oh, you, you in this house. Yeah, in this house that you just moved into. In the into. new house. Um, not that we know of, but also the entire house was redone inside, so I don't think there would be any... Uh, smells you know, or whatever lingering smells or anything it was all pretty fresh like carpets are fresh there was you know yeah fresh I mean, paint fresh everything so i think so your cat like mm-hmm. yeah she would have been an indoor cat right or she mm-hmm. is an indoor yeah, cat, oh yeah so she is an indoor cat she's her entire world was, was that other house, house. <laughs> and now she's Jesus. just been transported to a different planet <laughs> yeah basically she's living on mars as far as <laughs> she's concerned Right? She's got to, like, she's waiting out under there to make sure that it's not, like, hellfire out there. (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's, um, jeez. But it would probably be less confusing if, like, everything was different. But there are certain things that are the same, right? I don't know if that's helping her or hurting her, but, like, obviously she knows our voices and our smells and stuff, so that's similar so i don't know if that acts as like a grounding measure or if it's just well i have to imagine confusing she does come with you know cats come with a a bit of instinctual uh Mm -hmm. capacity for changing environments right because you know a a wild cat maybe has well maybe not i don't know yeah well a wild a wild cat's you know habitat and world is much larger than hers and yeah. i don't think every aspect of it is going to change basically all at once like that right 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 that's such an it's instant. not like a it's not like a jungle leopard is all of a sudden going to find itself in the frozen north just like right just at like least that. not naturally yeah no. yeah so it is very interesting kind of watching her figure that out um <laughs> but hopefully she will <laughs> are you bringing like... over the other cat no, okay. no, they are now divorced, which is a little sad. I don't think Buddy gives a crap, but we'll see how May reacts. Yeah, um, I was. We were actually over there tonight, and Buddy was just—he was fine. He was himself, <laughs> just hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll explain real fast that uh, yeah, the Buddy May is the name of the cat that mm-hmm. is with Alex, and yeah. May used to live, or did you know, lived her whole life with another cat named Buddy, and Buddy is hungry all the time. He's a big boy. He's a big Buddy. Buddy is much older, so he was on his own for a while. Then May came into the picture for a few years, and now she's gone again. Yeah. So. Buddy He's, is. He'll go back to getting all the attention that he wants. So he'll be fine. Buddy is big and boisterous. And May couldn't be more delicate and shy. Right. And... <laughs> they are the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a good topic. Um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. It's really fascinating. So I kind of... My, my original goal was actually... This is... I feel like a broken record where things... These topics get out of hand. Oh, mine got way that. out of hand. <laughs> yeah, and it did. So we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, my original goal was just, you know, kind of do something fun and, and look at different examples of animals exhibiting certain behaviors right yeah i'm thinking um, and i do that. that and i have some of that okay. but also i i started to dig into um 
some of the research questions that are used to mm. evaluate this and it's a fucking long list dude like we'll we'll just touch on some highlights um for the sake of time but uh there's a lot which makes sense but it's it's pretty cool once you kind of see it all laid out in front of you um but before doing any research i think my notions about this were probably the same as most people um you know pigs elephants dolphins those are smart chimps and and great great apes you know they're kind of they're people like you think of them as being pretty smart sure dogs cats probably somewhere in the middle like they're not totally dumb but they're not super intelligent either necessarily um and then you have things like insects and fish that are dumb and at the bottom i think that's i'm not saying any of this is true i'm saying that this is probably most people's what most people's idea of this is and yeah you know mostly it's probably accurate but there are definitely standouts that are that go against all that um and then birds too birds can learn and mock you and talk and birds are crazy actually birds are crazy (laughs) that is a true statement i'm also thinking about um like uh the cuttlefish and octopus yeah yep i did have that that's more of a recent one i think yeah that they are actually pretty smart yeah um and then so i think uh at least what i tend to jump to before reading all this the things that came to mind when i think about is an animal intelligent um the first thing i want to know and i already said this is you know can it understand what i'm saying that's where my mind goes first um the mirror test comes to mind uh and then kind of i guess more high level but personality and engagement with humans so like is the animal got a distinctive personality does it show affection does it do certain things that lead you to say to yourself like wow that animal was thinking about that or there was some (laughs) thought process there (laughs) and then if it has thumbs if it has thumbs it's all over yeah (laughs) right do you know raccoons have thumbs little fuckers Sorry, you cut out there for a second. What uh, what else though? Oh, I did. Uh, raccoons. Oh shit! Do they really? Yeah, look at a raccoon's hand, dude. Google that real quick. Uh, I've never seen one. Well, I guess I've never thought hard about it. They've got. No son That's of a bitch, so... they do. <laughs> That's why they're so good at like stealing shit. your trash. Yeah, <laughs> they're cute though. Yeah, the baby ones are pretty cute. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, I can do a little... I didn't want to go too much into the history of this stuff. Um, it is, it's interesting, but I think the current research methods are, are the most interesting part of all this. But Yep. Um, so, early 1900s and 1930s, you had a couple guys. Um, E.L. Thorndike. And then I.P. Pavlov, which you should recognize that name. Yep. Most people probably do. And then uh, later on a little bit, some guy named uh, John B. Watson. And they're kind of accredited with bringing this idea of animal cognition into a lab. You know, before that, people had theorized and talked about it, whatever. But they're kind of the first ones to start actually testing, doing it. some testing of some sort. Um, and at the time, they basically, the you know the belief 
widespread was that um, it was misleading and unnecessary to infer any kind of animal intelligence at all. Um, and everything that they were observing in the lab was just simple associations, is the way it was, you know, this was worded. So, I guess at the time, you know, I'm not a scientist in this field, of course, but simple associations as they're referring to it, I guess was not considered any form of intelligence. Like, it was just some basic biological function that, you know... Dogs like food, and they'll do things for food. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Um, And my counter to that is, wouldn't you... I don't see why you wouldn't classify that as some sort of intelligence level, even if it's considered a low, but, I mean, maybe they thought, maybe they really thought that, like, these animals weren't thinking at all. There was no thought happening, and it was just instinct. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know if this, uh, if if you've got stuff on this, but in terms of, like, measures of intelligence, one that just kind of came to mind was, like, how does an animal do in a new and unfamiliar situation like how do they handle mm-hmm. new information oh yeah th- so that's all the that's all the research methods oh okay stuff sweet, sweet is like is all that kind of thing um how you actually quantify or, right. or measure some of these things um yeah so it wasn't really until the 1960s where uh you know that so that kind of lasted that original mindset that animals have no brains basically <laughs> for a while until the 60s where that was countered and people started to investigate this again um you know they really thought that these thought processes and animals were a little more complex right um let's see yeah so let's see trying to decide if this is worth mentioning or not um just i guess the the guy that was kind of you know, associated with bringing this topic back into the lab in the 60s, um, Donald O. Hebb, H-E-B-B. Um, he argued that the the word mind is simply a name for processes in the head that control complex behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it is both necessary and possible to infer those processes from behavior. Um, so he's saying that animals can be seen as goal-seeking agents that acquire, store, retrieve, and internally process information. Um, therefore, you know, there's many le- uh, levels of cognitive complexity there. And, you know, the f- the initial belief from the 30s was just too simplistic. Yeah, and I mean, we don't, we don't have to go this deep, but ultimately a lot where this track leads is what is the nature of consciousness? Like, what even right. is... Definitely. How am I talking to you right now? You know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, and it's all subjective. Like you were saying earlier, we have no idea how a cat or a dog actually sees the world. You No clue. Or maybe maybe we have some clues, but ultimately you cannot get inside something else's head, really. You have to just infer it from right. what you're from able to observe see. observe behavior, from exactly. your own perception of right. the world. Right, which could be flawed. So could be flawed could be going through some bad filter you don't know um yeah so i mean so i think from there really it's just it's just these methods you know being tested and and new discoveries being determined or or discovered you know about particular groups of animals and um specific specific creatures so 
So I think there's, in general, high level, there's two kind of ways you can look at these methods. Um, animals can be studied in the lab, uh, you know, where you think about, like, mice running through mazes and birds pulling on strings and pushing levers and playing games and all this stuff, right? So, like, a real lab setting. Right. Um, or kind of what you mentioned about the mirrors before, but observing them in their natural habitat, or at least right. to some extent. Um, so you can, you might level or measure certain levels of intelligence through like learning and pattern, um, observation, that type of stuff in the lab. And then in the natural environment, you might start studying things like food storage and navigation and interspecies communication, stuff like that. Um, of course, I'm sure there's crossover between all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, nothing's ever black and white. Mm Mm-hmm. So one thing that's interesting is that some scientists use uh, basically certain tasks that we know we have a pretty good understanding of when in a child's development phase it should be able to master certain tasks. Wonder if you like, I, I was wondering if you were going to bring up human development because I got a couple of thoughts on it. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, so you, they'll try to, finish, yeah. They'll, well, they'll try to compare to it. So they'll say like, okay, a child at age five is able to do x this animal is able to do x its intelligence is somewhere in the realm of a five-year-old child and that's probably way oversimplifying it but yeah i think that's kind of the the general idea right yeah um hopefully this i'm not you know uh interrupting or breaking up a, a later part of your your part here but um no probably not human the babies are a really weird cross between your topic and uh or, or i shouldn't say a cross he, uh, human babies are a really interesting part of your topic in that we measure babies and like their intelligence and whatnot because they can't communicate on a level that we can kind of understand as adults we mm-hmm. totally understand their intelligence and learn things about all the tests and all the, the research done around um, human development. And, and especially in the past, like, let's say 70 years is from very similar tests to what you're probably going to describe, where we look at a baby's facial reactions and right. infer happiness or sadness. The mm-hmm. time, the amount of time that a baby looks at an object is a measurement of of certain things. Um, the whole object permanence thing, you know, okay. at like, I forget what age it is, but, excuse me, you know, at a certain age, babies, if you, the reason the peekaboo game works is because they don't have object permanence yet. They literally think that when your eyes are not visible, you are gone. They're, they're gone. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Well, actually, are they even capable of having that level of thought? Like, are they thinking to themselves, that person is gone? Like, we is don't that, know. Maybe not. You don't know, right? You don't. You can't really yeah, tell. True. All you can tell yeah. is that, like, if you put a red ball on a table, the baby knows it's there while it's looking at it. You put a, a piece yep. of paper or whatever in between them and the ball, and they act... It doesn't act understand that it's still there. Right. And then at age yeah. five, the kid will be like, no, I want the ball. Like, it's. I know it's yeah. behind the piece of paper. Which, yeah, you know, yeah, and it takes right. a certain amount of time to get there. 
Uh, and but, that's like a an amazingly high, complex, super high, you know, yep, cognitive ability. Just that, right? Yeah. Yep. And we have it by like age. I want to say it's like age four or three, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, no, sooner actually. It's going to be sooner. Yeah. Maybe two. Um, the last thing I'll say uh, for handing it back over is just that mm-hmm. that is a to me a really fascinating one because ultimately the human babies do grow up to be people. But we kind of all have this problem where our first couple of years are just like in this ether of you don't know what you were doing when you were two. So you, it's not even like you can report back once you get to age 12 and say, yeah, when I was two and you did that test, here's what I was thinking. Yeah, right. It's like that's all erased. Yeah. Soup. It's kind of spooky, actually. Kind of. <laughs> um, but yeah. So anyway. Yeah, I can't really, and like you can't pinpoint when your first memory is. No, like you can't really. say on. Um, no, I mean you can try to like think backwards and be like, okay, I kind of remember that, but the the accuracy of that, at least me personally, I don't trust that. No, no, memories uh, are super. The older the memory is, it, I think modern research is showing that they're 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 really. Uh, they're not very it's good. Not In fact, there's something good. called the uh, there's something called the Mandela effect, which is literally an event happens. Everybody that's there is like, "Yep." The day after, they're like, "Yep, that's what happened." And then, pretty much from day two going forward, you start asking people at cert- that were at whatever event, they're going to give you, they're going to start giving you different recollections of what happened as close as like a month or two. So that's crazy to think about because that means that really there's only a period of time between this instant and maybe let's say 24 hours ago where we know certain things. Right. After, you know, beyond that, nothing's really all that accurate anymore. Unless, I mean, I guess you, except for writing things down. I was just going to say, right? unless it's written down. Yep. True. Writing things down is, is vast. That's why it's so important. People suck at remembering. Yeah, we do. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll kind of get into some of these um, research methods and just the different ways that researchers try to compare and relate animal cognition to human cognition. Um, and I started digging deep until I realized how many different ways there are. So we can talk about a few at length and then we'll just kind of yeah. breeze through some of the others. Um so the first one is perception, and this is probably, you know, on the surface, pretty basic, um, but if you think about it, animals are, for the most part, are perceiving information and processing it about the world and through similar sensory organs that we do, right? Ears, eyes, Nose. Um, smell, yep. uh, you know, force of touch on their skin or whatever it is, so... If they're getting those inputs in a similar way that we are, you know, trying to use those um, as a way to relate to humans. Um, but then also, on contrary to that, uh, looking at the different processes that animals have that we don't have. So, like, echolocation comes to mind yeah. is, a, is a good one that That's bats and dolphins one. have. Yeah. Um, so that's just something that we, so that's, that's a good example of how can you really compare the, the 
intelligence of a dolphin to us when it's communicating with the world in a completely different way and navigating it in a completely different way. You just made me think about there's something called uh, the mantis shrimp. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, yeah, yeah. The mantis shrimp uh, sees, I forget exactly how much it is, but they have multiple eyeballs so they perceive that we have we have basically a single focal point you know our two Mm -hmm. eyes create stereoscopic vision with a single focal point that we can adjust this thing has multiple focal points and can see a way bigger spectrum of color essentially than we can really yep whoa so to your point some birds can see ultraviolet light yes this yeah exactly which is so like what is that like <laughs> right the only way i can try to like imagine what that would look like is if you're watching like six monitors at once <laughs> you know like that's how it's walking around is it's just seeing four or five or however many boxes of separate information but that's probably not at all yeah what it's actually like well it's probably it's... some crazy stitch of the environment that just like exactly or is it even is it even vision like what is it? Yeah, because not only does it, it have vision, the but, uh, not only does it have the the tools to take in that information, but whatever internal process it's created right. to process this information is going to be ridiculous and yeah, t- completely we, alien to us. Right? There's there's a lot going on between the light that your eyeball takes in and what your brain actually your brain has to do a lot of interpretation right yeah oh yeah absolutely so yeah what just because that thing has 12 eyeballs maybe maybe it does actually stitch together one single focal point could yeah it could it just is like some crazy range of you know field of view i mean i don't know it could be anything kind of a side note mm-hmm. but um regarding our brain and whatnot and actually i guess mm-hmm. technically all of all of vision anything that has vision it's kind of wild if you want to, if you want to categorize it this way you could say that almost every single thing that you're perceiving you're lagging behind in terms of its actual physical space because light takes a certain amount of time to travel mm-hmm. and your brain takes a certain amount of time to process that information it's obviously ridiculously small but you know, I'm watching the computer right now and I'm watching the, the recording line go mm-hmm. across the screen. Technically, that thing, what I'm seeing, it's it's however small amount of time in the future, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. I'm seeing it in the past in a way. Right. And that's, yeah, there's latency. It, late, ah, that's the word. Thank you. Struggling for that yeah. the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was something for that. And I was just like, ah, let's let's awkwardly stumble through it. <laughs> I think you did a pretty good job. Um, okay, so the next big one that I, I looked into here um, is definitely broad, and there's there's subcategories within it, but just the idea of attention. So something paying attention to something else. Um, so animals or, or anything, humans too, being able to select relevant information get rid of irrelevant information or switch between types of information Mm. depending on demands of the environment or whatever it is. Um, So that's a huge indicator uh, 
of, of what's going on, I guess. Um, so, you know, talking about things like uh, selective learning. Um, so you can have experiments where animals have learned to respond to a certain aspect of the environment. Um, and then once other aspects of it are suppressed, um, you know, it behaves differently. Uh, so they kind of, I don't know, I guess they have different experiments built up around selective learning and, you know, present the animal with two options and it'll choose one over the other, right? Right. That type of thing. Um, and then within that too, which is pretty interesting, is uh, one called divided attention. So just the idea that um, attention is a limited resource. And so if an animal is presented with certain amount of information, right, and it's able to either divide its attention between multiple things or, again, going back to the selective, um, choose the one that benefits it the most if there's multiple um, options presented. That, that's that's, that's um, pretty interesting. I Wow. Uh, let me... Another quick tangent, I suppose. For yeah, that's right. That's good. Um, in motorcycle racing, we... Mm-hmm always talk about or at least when we're talking about this sort of thing we always say that um you have ten dollars worth of attention and if you're Mm -hmm. going into a corner and Mm -hmm. you're spending and we always talk about how much money are you spending on work uh thinking about your braking or thinking about your body position and the goal Mm -hmm. is to spend less and less money or attention on whatever it is you're doing (laughs) So, like, but when you're learning, they'll tell you all the time, like, um, okay, today, or, you know, when you're out on track or whatever, and you want to focus on braking, if you're not good enough, or you don't have enough attention span, enough money in in attention, if you will, you have to actively ignore other things so that you can focus on it and and bring things down. So, like, you might, if you're working on braking, you might have to start shifting way earlier just so that you can get that out of the way and right, right. focus on the breaking or whatever it is. So yeah, we, we, we talk a lot about you have only so much attention span and where you divide that is quite a, an important thing. Yeah, that's interesting. So you said it, the goal is to reduce the amount of money spent. The, so the more, yes, the more muscle memory you get, let's say with the breaks, the less you have to think about the brakes, so the less money you're spending, the less mind you money can, you're spending on right. the brakes, so that you can then put your attention to other things. Right, you can invest it elsewhere. Exactly. Gotcha. Huh. So, in theory, would you invest all ten dollars into what the line, focusing on the line, or? No, I, I suppose at a certain point, you're, I suppose the ultimate goal is to become so comfortable that you're spending probably an equal amount. On okay, everything, everywhere. and you found this gotcha. sort of equilibrium that, that makes sense. But no, well, line choices, yeah, your line through it's the corner wonderful. is a really yeah. is a really great one. Lots and lots of people struggle with that. So that I should use that as an, as an example. If you're focusing on your lines for the day and like the actual trajectory through the corner, you yeah. would totally sacrifice your braking in in terms of like how hard you're braking and how late you're braking. You would totally change that up. So that you could yep. focus exclusively on your position on the track. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. This is a good topic. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that can get me talking about motorcycle racing is a good topic. Yeah, there you go. 
Um, all right, so this next one is is pretty cool. So uh, concepts and categories, and really, it's <laughs> it's the concept of the word concept. So are <laughs> animals right? I mean, are animals able to conceptualize and place things into categories? So you know, concepts as that concept of a concept it allows humans and animals to organize the world into into groups basically yeah. right yep. so um we can compartmentalize similar objects or events or um group things together based on function or relation whatever it is um and we know that we can do that as humans that helps us navigate the world and so that's something that they're after in in studying in animals um so, one a very common test, I guess, with this is to have birds interact with a computer screen, and they'll, you know, bring up <laughs> sounds ridiculous, bring up an image, and if the bird pecks at that image, if it falls into a certain category, they're rewarded, and if the bird doesn't peck because it's out of the category they're looking for, you know, it's re- so it's you know the bird will peck if it's falls within the the target category or whatever, um, they're rewarded if they do so. The only thing I don't understand about that test is how they choose the category. Yeah, like, yeah. How is it that the bird knows the starting category, you know? Ooh. I'm uh, not sure how that's that's formed. I think you'd have to go with food. When you first were bringing up this test, Maybe. I was thinking yeah. about, like, a lion has to be able to categorize, okay, those are prey animals, I can eat those, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that is a tiger, I can't eat that. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, there is, um, or at least not easily, it's a different test. Um, Yeah, it's it's. I think it's a different test, but uh, similar in that certain animals are able to prioritize. Like if they get, if they're presented with two food options, they'll choose the one that's more beneficial for them. Definitely. I Uh, mean, certain certain animals will be able to do that. It's kind of messed up, but. Tigers and lions and predators will totally go after the babies instead of the parents. Right, it's easier. It's so and, much easier. Or whatever, yeah. Yeah. And they must have, and now, the question, though, that comes up there is, is that a, a learned thing that's being passed down from mm-hmm. parent to parent, or parent mm-hmm. to child each time, or, or is it actually intelligent enough to understand on its own through experience and maybe it's a, it's probably mm-hmm. just a mixture of right. these two both of these things but like you know it does it go after a bunch of like teenage gazelles at their prime and then the, mm-hmm. the lion realizes oh wait if i go after the the baby gazelle it's actually right. way easier yeah i'm not sure um uh, i know it is i feel like you know watching enough nature documentaries you see those uh those instances where the lion takes on more than it can chew and, and doesn't quite get the kill, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. That happens. So. It does. It does. Um, some of the categories that they've observed animals using is pretty cool. So um, one of them is just like perceptual. So a squirrel climbing a tree because it sees a dog, for instance, like a predator. It's, it sees that and it reacts, climbs a tree that's like its perception of that thing is danger and i'm you know it classifies and categorizes that dog as the danger category and climbs a tree yeah bales (laughs) bales um 
some other natural categories. So like, you know, categorizing things by color or form is definitely very, you know, uh, common in animals or there's even been studies that birds are trained to detect humans specifically in photographs like they'll show birds pictures of humans that they've never seen before or whatever but they're able to see the form of a human and confirm via pecking or whatever you know that that's a human and actually i i read that study a little bit and they even did like humans of different shape size color some of the photographs didn't even have the whole human in them and the the results were still consistent so that's another that's another win for the birds Fuck the <laughs> <laughs> um what is it ravens and like crows are like some of the smartest yeah. right it's kind of yeah they're yeah. they're on their tool game pretty good yeah um so so next level i would say is like rationalizing or creating even abstract categories um so kind of learning or carpent carp compartmentalizing that's actually a pretty tough word things that they've already seen is one thing so you show a bird or whatever a bunch of things and then it's able to then go through and put them in the different buckets or whatever um teaching that first and then showing them things that they've never seen before that could fall into the categories like new images and them still being able to identify them or or put them in the right category um so that's kind of like the next level uh, kind of, I was saying pigeons can do this. Chimps can certainly do this. So they're you. You would say objectively they're, or by some measure they're pretty smart because it's it's they're taking a previously learned pattern and applying and, it to new and applying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is definitely, definitely they're abstracting it onto a new. You you would definitely thing, argue which... that that is more intelligent than just knowing the pattern, but only being able to use that pattern in its learned form i suppose exactly exactly i think that's well said um so memory is a is a pretty obvious one but this is definitely a huge one i mean there's tons of ways to test the memory capability but um i think commonly you'll hear about mazes in the lab and stuff like that but one that oh sorry i was just earlier when when we started talking about this topic and you brought it up i my i did go to the mice in the maze thing and as we're talking about this, that just, it, it seems less and less useful. Testing them in that way? Yeah, just the kind of the classic maze test, I guess. Yeah. And maybe right. it's because we've already done it and we've already understood all that there is to understand, but. Yeah, I think it just goes, you know, the test can go a lot further than yeah, that. Yeah, it's just a simple pattern at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway. Uh, one that fascinates me, and I don't necessarily have a any test information that backs how they test this or whatever, but um, the spatial memory of like squirrels and birds that stash nuts and seeds oh, yeah. in the, like, and then finds them after finds them later, first of all. And then the environment that it stashed them in is typically different than the environment that then has to go find them again. You know, like if it stashes them in the fall and then in the springtime, things look different. It's still able to, hmm navigate around and, and find all the stuff that's pretty fascinating i don't know how it does that ultra like, ultra brain like, really capable of of plotting out all of those little squirrel or you know acorn stashes of, probably yeah. maybe it, maybe it plots 700 of them and only remembers 100 i don't know <laughs> it just is a game of odds i don't know uh that 
sounds pretty plausible. If nothing yeah. else, other than just a security measure, like a, a hedging your hedging your investment kind of thing, right? No matter. Well, and I guess if if there's so many squirrels and they're all putting in <laughs> so many nuts in the ground, maybe, maybe it's just like they're bound to find find one eventually, whether it's theirs or someone else's. <laughs> Carl took my fucking acorn. Right, what an asshole. There was one specifically that I wanted, and Carl took it. I've been looking it forward to that all winter. <laughs> right? I dreamt about it for two months. <laughs> um, okay, so there are so many more categories and, and methods, um, and I'm just going to name them. And if you want to, if you have any comments about them specifically, we can totally talk about them. Okay. But I do want to get into some of the specific animal examples because they are fun. Okay, yeah. Um, but so these are some of the other methods um animals ability to navigate Mm. its environment so like think birds flying or just you know navigating through the through their habitat yeah we were talking about uh one of the previous episodes um you know the whole magnetism in pigeons and and all that sort of thing and we still Mm -hmm. don't quite know what they're up to with that all right um timing is interesting so you know, that can range from things like circadian rhythm that we can observe in animals, but also an interesting example I pulled from it is um, hummingbirds. So they will feed off the same flowers, but they have to give the time, the flower time to replenish before they can come back. Ooh. And they are able to do this. And so they'll, oh. they'll go and hit certain flowers, and by the time they come back to the new flower... Or the old, the original flower, you know, it's had time to, to come back. So that's something that they're able to to gauge somehow. So that that's so crazy to think about because, okay, if we did that, if we ate flowers and we had to remember, we can all agree, like, we can all imagine how each other might, it's, it's hard to describe, but like, I can totally see myself saying to myself, okay, on Tuesday, I ate this flower. So... Or I ate from this flower, so I need to give that one a week. Like I know in my right. own head what that process is, I suppose, and I can assume and guess that for you it would be very similar. You just look at a flower, okay, and and then mark it mentally in your head. But yep. the whole thing that we're getting at here is like, is that at all similar to how a hummingbird does it? Right, it might not be. It cause... probably isn't. <laughs> maybe the the bird doesn't actually have like because i feel like there's a memory aspect of this too like you have to be able to store that information at least in the way we would think about doing it you have to be able to store that information for at least that week right to be able to recall it later or is it something far less uh mentally taxing and there's something about the flower that the hummingbird has understood to signal it's not ready. So it doesn't actually have to remember flower A versus that, flower yeah, B. That could be too. It's got some sort of signal yep. process there. Hmm. But like for us, we if we were interested in eating flowers, like I don't I don't I mean maybe I could figure something out, but um well I, yeah, actually I guess that's what I would have to do. Because mm-hmm. if I'm trying to eat too many flowers. I'd put it in my phone calendar <laughs> at this point. Take a take a picture of it and write. Take a picture. <laughs> Remind me in one week. Evolution, that, right? 
So that actually leads nicely to the next one. Tools and weapons. Oh, shit. Yeah, so... Wait, who's using weapons? I don't know. And I really actually would like to go back and figure out why this one is specifically labeled weapons. Um, <laughs> but, sir... <laughs> There's just something... I'm just picturing, like, I don't know, a lion picking... Like a chimp with a battle axe. That's actually terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. I would fuck you up. Um... So I think about, like, birds using things to poke insects out of the trees. That's a pretty classic yeah, one. Yep. Um, rocks to break open seeds. Uh, what is it? Otters uh, do the whole, like, they'll use rocks or whatever to open up clamshells and stuff. Yeah, yep. There's one that, um, won't, won't bears, like, use a stick and, and put it down into an anthill or something like that to pull out some of the bugs? I think I've seen that. I feel like, yeah. I Maybe feel it's like not bears, true. but it yeah and that's the tool that the tool use is really crazy because mm-hmm. uh, let's take the otter at some point the first otter like had to have had the th- maybe it maybe it dropped a clam onto a rock but no matter what at some point the otter had to have made the association that taking something and smashing it is a good you know what i mean like that there's the intelligence right there is the association right. of doing thing a leads to thing b right yeah so the the otter came pre-installed with the software to learn and then that just is kind of the thing that ended up being learned yep and passed down right all right so some of the other ones um i kind of wish i dug into tools and weapons more in hindsight but <laughs> it's <all good>. um <laughs> so We'll go through these quick. Problem solving is is another one, um, and that one I think overlaps probably with a lot of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, cognitive bias, which we did a whole episode on that. Sure. I guess you know that's observable in animals, which is probably pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, language between animals. That's you know I can think of chimps definitely exhibiting some sort of language, mostly uh, verb or body language. Um, Dolphins communicating with each other, whales, that type of thing. Um, numeracy, which is, I guess, the ability to actually understand, at least at a very basic level, numbers and amounts. Yeah. Um, probably the most fascinating one, and I, I really do see another spinoff. I know we're not supposed to declare episodes ahead of time, but <laughs> Theory of Mind. So the theory of mind being applied to animals. So like, um, you know, I guess apes. And actually, I have an example of this uh, further down. So I don't want to get there quite yet. But um, basically, an uh, an animal understanding that another animal is able to think as well. I'm gonna put it that way. Oh, okay. So, like, I was not... That animal is capable of understanding that somebody else has also got a, a mind of its own interesting yeah um and then consciousness in general so that's that's a huge one too yeah. probably <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's get into some of these specific examples because they are fun um and this is where kind of the whole interest started so we'll start with the mirror the mirror test so the animals that have been confirmed and there could be more uh this is just the list that I was able to find um, that passed the mirror tests. Uh, so, Sorry. A- Asian elephants, 
so I think that's interesting because they're, I don't, I guess African elephants aren't included in that. Really? Only Asian elephants, from what I understand. Um, and so one thing that's actually a caveat of all of this, and we're going to see it uh, in the next example, is that communication and the methods of communication kind of play a role in this because, so the next, I'll just, I'll just use this example great apes are able to see themselves in a mirror but it gets tricky with gorillas because gorillas don't look at each other they avoid eye contact so to get a gorilla to pass the mirror test is hard because it literally won't look at itself you almost have to change this the success criteria and say exactly yeah yeah exactly huh um and it realized that they didn't look at each other they're just all a bunch of shady well shady eye contact is seen as a form of um, aggression right it's a threat so it won't (laughs) It's not going to look at itself long enough in the mirror to go, oh, wait a minute, I know you. Yeah. It's going to... Because if it did, it'd have to kill you. Right, it it would just start thrashing. Yeah. (laughs) Which is terrifying and kind of cute at the same time. (laughs) It won't look at itself long enough to recognize itself. Um, But yeah, so chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, um, and then I'm not familiar with this type of ape, but a a bonobo? Bonobo? Oh, yeah, 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 yep. I, they're I guess like I, a, that one went under the radar for me. They're a smaller ape, I suppose, but yeah. um, I can't remember too much. But I feel like maybe this is why. But I, they are definitely a unique group. Mm-hmm. They come up a lot actually in a lot of these tests, Madag- so they must uh, they must be quite right? smart. Bonobo. Oh, that is a men's clothing company. All right. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Yeah. All right, so next on the list, bottlenose dolphins. Um, and they are actually, of all of the animals doing the mirror test, they are extremely responsive to it. Like, they'll dance in front of the mirror, they'll, like, stick their tongue out at themselves, <laughs> like, flip around, like, really start interacting and get fascinated with the fact that they can see themselves. Okay, so... so they, they show the most response. Dolphins are spooky intelligent. They are spooky. Do They're you... little aliens swimming through the ocean. Yeah, totally. Um, have you seen the video? Hopefully I'm not spoiling something. Um, have you seen the video where they are passing? The the, yeah. 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 I have. Actually, I don't know if I've ever watched the video, but I've heard a lot about it. So I'll, I'll describe it real fast. Um, there's this video out there where presumably, I mean, the interpretation is that they're, they're lightly biting on this pufferfish to get it to release this cloud of what presumably normally is supposed to be like a toxin but the dolphins clearly enjoy it and not only that it it appears they're getting high from it or something in some form of pleasure from it and they're passing it to each other one will come up (laughs) do you know and you can go the, the videos out there it's it's yeah I just my mouth was on the floor when I watched this video years ago now, but like, yeah, that was the moment where I was like, "Holy crap! These things are totally—they're what I would consider like classically intelligent, or you know, whatever the term is." Like, yeah, they're they're mysterious, very mysterious, and yeah, I don't know. I I, I just know that they communicate a lot, and they're very—they show a lot of signs. Well, there's of there's evidence that they each have their own call sign or name or, or whatever you want to uh, mm-hmm. call it. Some sort of they, identification. Yeah, they each have their own noise that is yeah. analogous to a name. 
That's crazy. It's awesome. Um, okay, so continuing on our list, number four is orcas, which are also in the you know similar mm, yeah family. Yep. So they they pass the test as well. Uh, magpies, which are a bird, are the first non-mammal to pass. Oh, which is pretty interesting. Magpies are assholes. Um, <laughs> so they basically put colored stickers on their um, feathers, and so the magpies with they did colored stickers and then non like clear stickers basically to as a control. So the ones with the colored stickers in the mirror tried to pick it off their wings, like you know, oh, react okay. to it, and then the ones with the clear stickers that. They didn't. They couldn't see it, and so they basically by doing that they knew that it wasn't just like a an agitation a feel that they thing. were reacting to a feel thing. They were actually seeing it. Oh man. Um, yeah. So this one blew me away a little bit. Uh, ants. What? Ants. What? Are confirmed to pass the mirror test. They groom themselves, dude, in what? the mirror. You put an ant. They start like, yeah. Like, they like to see themselves, and they start moving back. They change their behavior a little bit. They start, like, waving their arms around at themselves. Check their ass out a little bit. Pretty much. It sounds like they're like, fuck yeah, look at that. And, what and they the tested world? this against their kind of similar way that they did with the magpies, is they would put a piece of clear glass in between the ants and other ants, just to make sure that they didn't do the same thing with, like, some sort of... Other ant on the other side, pa- yeah. panel in front of with another ant. So what? they kind of with that and a few other methods verified that they're not just seeing what they think is another ant um yeah that's crazy that's really crazy like i just killed probably five ants today you you son of a bitch you know in a rat right (laughs) i feel a little bad now that is unexpected that's spooky (laughs) unexpected i agree with that um and then the last one which i already mentioned was the cleaner cleaner ras the fish yep um, so that's the first fish to pass that test, um, and I'm not sure if there's others at this point. That's but. the real quick on the ras. That's really interesting because the behavior, the whole life, the approach to life for the ras is very. Um, you could argue it's very intelligent in a certain sense. It get it survives by taking a calculated risk and building a relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been built already at this point, but like. The first few wrasses that started cleaning the mouths of sharks must have understood that what they were doing was dangerous Probably. to a certain extent. I don't know exactly how or, or, or whatnot, but like, you know, they, they don't just search out um, prey animals. These wrasses like find host fish and, cl- yeah, you know, right. they perform a seemingly more uh, specific task, I guess, mm-hmm. and which is. Which is I had never thought about it that way. That is kind of an interesting form of intelligence. Like they're 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 doing something rather other than just finding something and killing and eating it. Right. They've got a, a little extra layer of Yeah, exactly, exactly. Existence going yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so this is gonna blow your mind a little bit. I'm ready. This is um, very recently published. I looked at two different studies. Um Basically, bees can do basic math. I think I've heard about this. Have you heard about this? Uh, not too so, much, but... I guess the re- initial discovery, which I don't know how old this discovery is, still recent, but maybe, you know, a couple years, I don't know, um, that they somehow, and I don't know the details, they determined that bees have a concept of what zero is, the concept of having nothing, 
So they figured that out, and then this new study was based on that. And basically what they did is um, the, they taught the bees to recognize colors as a symbolic representation of addition and subtraction. So basically they were shown a certain amount and grouping of shapes, and they were also a certain color. And basically, depending on what they saw, it either meant add or subtract to a certain number, and then the bee had to choose either go left or go right based on that. Um, based, you know, it would go left or right based on the addition it had to or subtraction it had to do, and then it would get rewarded for choosing the right direction, something like that. Okay. It was a little, little bit confusing, um, but basically, it had to come up with the new number based on the information it was given, and then make the decision to go right or left based on that. Right, and and they did. Therefore. It, and they did. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous, dude. Okay, so there's a there's a really crazy one. An insect. You could all yeah, you could almost you know Well, here's two insects now. You have the ants and you have the bees. Yeah. That each have their own. But like we feel I would I would argue that we feel a lot closer to a dog or a cat than we do to a bee, right? Right. And but a dog's not doing math. A dog's not doing <laughs> no it's not and so like going back to the whole like how do they see the world we don't know for sure but i guess you could kind of imagine how a dog sees the world maybe but like there's no getting into a bee's head no, like not, what no, in the world you don't even all of those senses are different yeah all of it yeah they can fly it's for starters <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah, and it, it is also interesting. I, I started to wonder why, from an evolutionary and biological standpoint, are they able to do that? Yeah, that's what a are great they doing question. in their existence that requires them to have that? So, you know, because I, I would think that they don't just have it for no reason. So Most things have a purpose. Right. All right, I'm going to... I have a few, but this one, I'm going to do one more because I alluded to it before, and it's equally as fascinating as the other ones to me um so it's the theory of mind in apes so this study and i'll just lay out the study for you because it's pretty cool so basically what they did is they had apes in some sort of room being able to observe this area and a human walks into the area notices an object that they have in a certain location and then leaves the room so the ape is witnessing all of this they watch the human come in the human in some way acknowledges the object okay. and then leaves. And then while that human is out of the room, the ape is still observing the area and in some way that object gets moved to a different location within the room. Okay. okay so the ape the ape sees the object that moved. Right. And we the original human enters the room and the researchers were able to witness the ape anticipating the human to look for the object in the original location. Whoa. So that ape was either via body language or where it was looking or, you know, just how it was reacting to the situation. The ape clearly was expecting the human to look in that original location rather than the new location. So this was apparently repeatable. They were able to witness this. So that's kind of the idea of that ape associating thinking with something else yeah it understands that 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 human is has a thought process happening right dude i think that's cool (laughs) oh man 
Like, so that that makes you think, like... Okay, go, sorry, go ahead. You know, so that ape, that ape in its other... In its natural habitat with other apes, if it was witnessing that, naturally would maybe try to help the other ape, like, find something that it sure, knows... Sure. You know, like, you could see how that could be useful in... Absolutely. ape society. <laughs> Not to get so, too yeah. depressing, but all that makes me think of right now is, uh, like, apes and zoos. It, I mean... Yeah, it's, it is, it's all of these, all any animal that has, yeah. I mean, yeah, any, I mean, zoos are, if they're rehabilitating and conserving, things like that are, are one thing. They have a good, it's just, most of the time they do have good parts about yeah, them. There's certain ones that, that have the right intention, others are all, you know, dog and pony show. Yeah. Dude, that's crazy. All right, I think I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there. Um, some good examples, because we're already in a decent amount of time yeah. so i don't want to no, that's all good cut you short um but yeah excellent topic um, though damn and dude there are spin-offs possible all over this i mean there are so many of these things that you could go down the rabbit hole into further but i think that theory of minds one is is the most dude, i can't believe the <laughs> ant checks itself out in the mirror that's <laughs> it's not crazy like starts flicking its little antennae around, moving its, it waves its arms. Like, it, oh, like, hey, look at that! I don't know, I don't know what an ant looks like when it's grooming itself, but that was specifically mentioned in the thing. Yeah, in the source. So I think that's pretty nutty. All right. Well, uh, I would say that the berry center here is that um, hunter-gatherer humans would have definitely needed to understand and interpret the behaviors of their prey animals and whatnot to survive. Um, that is, of course, until we figured out farming, which then required a whole <laughs> other uh, set of uh, intelligence. Hmm. So my topic today is, as they so often do, got a little out of hand. And um, so I originally started with, uh, and, and you'll 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 have some of uh, you, you'll be able to contribute to this a bit here. So. This, the focal point, I guess, is uh, a place called Gobekli Tepe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. this is a ancient structure, monolithic structure. Monolithic uh, refers to basically giant stones um, in Turkey, what uh, basically the northern end of the Fertile Crescent uh, that we all learned about in fourth grade or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Gobek- but we're also going to talk about, like, this place, Gobekli Tepe, basically what has happened is since 1994, when we started looking at it with the current set of eyes, has totally upended uh, our understanding of human history, potentially at least, uh, to the point where it's going to get kind of spooky. There was probably a super advanced civilization of humans way way sooner like 6,000 years sooner than we cur- or at least the current uh, prevailing people would say right? and that those humans were very very much likely wiped out by a fragment or many fragments of a comet about mm-hmm. 12 or I'm sorry 11,600 years ago that's that's crazy. Yeah, so and this civil and then we basically lost as as a as a race or, or as a 
a species, we basically lost all of our knowledge, potentially, mm-hmm. for like 5,000 years. And then and just reset. And then ancient Egypt came along. So. Really? Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the, some of the roadmap here. So we'll. Um, all right, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, so yeah. I'll just, I'll try to ask them at the right time. Definitely. Um, yeah, definitely ask away. And I got tons of info and whatnot. So we'll, we'll, we'll hit the main beats and we'll get through it. So go back to the Tepe itself. We'll, we'll start there. We'll describe what it is and, mm-hmm. and all that. So I do have a picture of it in front yes, of me. Yes, good, good. So it's, um, I mean, it doesn't look. It just looks like a bunch of dirt. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't really look like much <laughs> today because it's literally 12,000 years old. And that's super old. That's um, that is old. Really, really old. Fuck. And But it's a, um, in its heyday, what it probably looked, or what it definitely looked like, it's a, it's a series of stone circles that, you know, mm-hmm. with a ring in the middle and then larger and larger diameter circles, you know, radiating out from it, uh, from the center. And there's these giant stone pillars that look like uh, a poorly drawn T. And, and poorly drawn because the, the, the height of the T, the pillar, and sort of the crossbar, mm-hmm. a capital T, the crossbar is, is usually far shorter than you would draw a T. So it's like a, yeah, yeah right. it's like a T, but with a short crossbar, capital T. And they're arranged, the, the pillars are arranged in a circle as well, uh, you know, and, and placed mathematically, you know, maybe eight of them in, in one circle and then 16 in the next mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And it's, uh, this whole structure is, uh, on top of a hill in in Turkey or modern day Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, the northern end of Potbelly Hill. What's that? Potbelly Hill, according to yeah, that's Turkey so. Day. The name Gobekli Tepe refers to, or it, it means pot-bellied hill. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. And uh, what's kind of wild is that it appears that at least a significant portion of the hill itself is actually the structure, like humans built the hill. Really. Like underneath it, is... we have taken radar scan. We've only excavated about five percent. That picture you're looking at probably right now is is yeah. roughly five percent. There's still ninety five percent of it underground. Oh. So did it get buried by natural causes? Or Ooh, you just spoiled my end. Um, oh no. no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> well, that's actually one of the more fascinating parts. Is it appears to have been purposely buried about nine Whoa. about nine thousand years ago. Which is kind of spooky. That is kind of yeah, crazy. The, Would that have been before they got wiped out or after? Piers after. Really? So some... Somebody came along potentially and... Uh, well, there's a couple theories. and We'll, we'll get to the theories yeah. of why it was buried. Okay. But yeah, the place was seemingly purposely buried, which is really weird. So did we uncover... Like, did we not discover it for a while? And that's why we built our understanding, you know, not considering this? Like, did we just not know it was there until pretty recently? Basically. Yeah. Also, radiocarbon dating is super helpful. So, uh, I think I think it was sort of first... I mean, who knows exactly... You know, somebody might have known that for who knows how long that this hill was had man-made stuff in it on it yeah but in the 70s is when people started kind of looking at it and then 1994 is when we properly a guy named klaus schmidt uh german guy uh properly started like looking into it so like 1994 is 
really when our when we actually understood how old it was and all the okay. all the modern understandings of it. So, yeah, it's um, southeastern Anatolia region of Turkey is where it's located, northern end of the Fertile Crescent, as I said. It's possibly, or it appears to be about 12,000 years old. It's been abandoned for about 9,000 years. Um, and, yeah, so it's a, it's a monolithic site. It's these pillars, uh, they weigh up to 10 tons. And... <laughs> The pyramids were built four thousand years ago, and we were maybe maybe right? we were racking our heads maybe. how they were moving those stones four thousand years ago. So roll the clock back even not even just further, way further, and early double. humans <laughs> are moving ten ton pieces of rock. Yeah, what the fuck? And then standing them up. Yeah, and carving out. It looks yes. like. I'm reading here about sockets. Like, yeah, they're not just stacked nope. like haphazardly. They're constructed. They're uh, they're mitered into the hillside. What the fuck? This creeps me dude, out. Dude, it's gonna get so much. It's gonna <laughs> dude. Wait, do you see some of the connections and some of the from other parts of history that just this is so it's so weird. Um. So let's see. There's so I took so many so notes. Cool. It's insane. <laughs> um, so yeah, I suppose that's what Gobekli Tepe is, and what we think it is, or what its purpose was, I should say, is um, it appears to be a temple. Possibly now, this is the oldest known currently. This is the oldest known structure uh, that we humans built structure that we have found. So it's possible, of course, right. that there is something else older that we haven't found yet. But mm-hmm. people are, are calling this the world's first temple. And part of that is because we have found no evidence. I, mean, I suppose the main reason we have found no evidence of permanent living in this place. There are no hearths for fires. There are no housing. There's no anything. And there's nothing in the surrounding area. Oh, interesting. So it is a it's a destination. It is not a uh habitable spot for more than you know a right. few days or, or whatever okay so that's really interesting because um our traditional understanding of the transition between hunter-gatherer culture to agricultural uh or uh, i believe neolithic neolithic refers to food producing culture so if you say the neolithic age uh, you would say is the age in which humans started to farm or raise cattle or whatever. Um, and so essentially what this place is doing is taking our understanding of when the Neolithic era began and rolling it back like 6,000 years, which is a yeah, huge amount insane. of time. And not only that, we don't know anything else about those 6,000 years. Like we have nothing. So this place is like, is like a bright red spot on a, a timeline with blackness all around it we have no idea forward or back relative to it like (laughs) ancient egypt is thousands of yeah exactly ancient egypt is thousands of years later than this thing is in terms of age but to be fair we don't really know we can't be certain when 
ancient Egypt started either, right? Well, Isn't we know up for debate. Well, that's and that's part of the story here. We know sort of like Cleopatra and you know mm-hmm. sort of the popular culture version, if you will, of ancient Egypt. We kind of know when that mm-hmm. began. And funny enough, the Sphinx was wrapped up in the Sphinx and the pyramids and all that were put into the same box. However, right. it turns out, or at least, and this is, I should, I should have started with this disclaimer. Some of the things we're going to talk about here are definitely disputed. Um, and, you know, but, and, and it's, you know, I'm obviously not a scientist and all that normal Wandering Barry Center disclaimer, you know. I'm just I'm just piggybacking off the backs of you know the hard work of other people, but um, so it certainly looks like that the Sphinx specifically, not the pyramids, yeah, is way way older than everything else right. around it, right? And it appears to be about as old as Gobekli Tepe. Hmm. And one of the crazy things about the Sphinx is that it has. Uh, what you could definitely, I mean, I think it, I think it's pretty well accepted at this point. Um, the Sphinx has rain erosion marks right. on it, right? Which means that at some point, well, presumably when the Sphinx was built, maybe after whatever, the Sphinx was in a, like a rainforest, right? Which, if we have any understanding of you know the cycle and the timeline, it when that area would have been a rainforest. Puts it about 12,000 years ago. Right. Mad long ago. Mad long ago. <laughs> and what's... And the Sphinx has been, like, altered and updated and, you know... Yes, yes, it it's has not been really messed. in its original form. Exactly. So, so go, go side ahead. note, real yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah, please. I did... I just wanted to see where um, Gobekli Tepe is on the yep, map. Yep, And so, turns out there's, there's a lot of, like street view type photos here and one of the first of all i didn't realize that they have like a tourist section set up around it where you can walk it is now a world heritage site yeah you can go visit it okay all of it or just this one part Uh, probably not all of it i mean there are parts of it that are under active excavation uh i mean the guy klaus schmidt is still you know he's still he bought a house in turkey he's he's fully committed so okay well i was just gonna say the height of human contrast is pretty relevant here. Or, you know, I'm looking at a lady talking on her smartphone while staring at 12,000 year old ruins. Right? It's, it's from the comfort of my home thousands of miles away. <laughs> it's a striking. <laughs> that's, that's pretty uh, fucking strange. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> anyway. <sighs> so, um, what was I talking about? The Sphinx is super old, older than. Yep. Because conventional theory put the Sphinx, like I said, in the same place. So we have no idea. If, if you believe that the Sphinx is as old as I just said it is, we have no idea who built it. No clue. Right. Which is... Could have been the same people who built it. It could have been. Um, yeah, so the, the whole... Although ge- geographically, I guess I don't really know how close they actually are. Not too far. Uh, so technically, Egypt, uh, well, and Cairo and whatnot... That sort of northeastern mm. end of Egypt is part of the. It's the. It's the part of the Fertile yeah, Valley. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's just the. It's the. Yeah. It's the westernmost end of the Fertile Valley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm, uh, let's see. I tried to plan out my. 
guess we could talk a little bit more about Tepe itself before getting to some of the crazier stuff. Um, so you were saying earlier the stones have carvings on them. Um, and we, yeah, like pretty detailed from the pictures I'm looking very at. Very detailed, and we could talk a little bit about them. Um, so we know that uh, the first four animals to be domesticated, barring the dog, which was a very unique situation, um, goats, sheep, cow, and pig. Okay. Those sim- those animals are all over this place. Hmm. So are prey animals, like lions and scorpions, in fact, uh, and a few other things. I see a fox. Fox, here. yep. What's funny about the fox, actually, foxes, <laughs> there's no foxes. Like, or at least there could have been, I suppose, but like, there aren't any foxes in modern day Turkey. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, where, how do they know what a fox was? Exactly. Um, we found, uh, so, uh, sorry, the reason I brought the animals and whatnot, and it fur- that furthers the, uh, sort of the temple theory for this place. Um, it appears to have been a place of sacrifice and some sort of spiritual or religious significance. Um, mm-hmm. We found, but also potentially human sacrifice as well. We have found tons and tons of animal bones, of course, but we have found human bones uh, buried in this place. Um, but the trouble there is that are those human bones from the people who built it, or are they from the people who filled it in? Uh, right. You don't know. You really can't. Can't they date the bones? Or no? I couldn't find anybody that has dated the bones yet. Because mm-hmm. I, I was wondering the same thing. Yeah, maybe it's just not as a uh, high priority as some of the other stuff. So the place is very um, animal focused. It's it's very focused on that and. It's interesting to note. So to me and, and some other people, this place kind of, it's hard to really know because the timeline here is is uncertain. And as we'll talk about in a minute, there's an event, the Comet event, really disrupts things. Um, so it's hard to know exactly the sequence of events, but it's almost like this place represents the true transition between hunter-gatherer society and agricultural neolithic society and part of that is really weird because um so in a hunter-gatherer environment you are surviving you don't have time to go mine a 10-ton stone move it 500 yards and put it into a hill you've got to hunt (laughs) a gazelle and kill it we had always thought that uh traditional wisdom said that we first figured out um farming and then we started building structures this place for a few reasons we we may not get to cover turns that on its head and it almost looks like the fertile crescent was such a plentiful and uh abundant place that the hunter-gatherer societies had so much that they settled and built this place as a monument to basically their relationship with the earth and from there began to understand how to farm and whatnot because there would have been natural oh, there would have been natural plants and stuff that they could have there it would have been yeah. all over the place and there would have been millions and millions of animals at their fingertips and and they would have you know early humans would have come to this place and just 
you know, gotten down on their knees and, and praised whatever right. God or whatever because there's just right. endless amounts of resources. That's so cool. <laughs> Another really w- interesting thing and, and sort of allude, or a strong piece of evidence, uh, it's a bit, a bit of interpretation, but cave paintings from way long ago, the animals are always the centric thing in the cave paintings. Right. It's the humans, right. and, and if you kind of just imagine the center of the painting is sort of the important part. The animals are always in the center. Okay. One of the theories is that the T-shaped stones are a very crude representation of the human form. Some of the carvings in the stones suggest that they are supposed to be humans, and they are therefore dominating the animal that is carved on oh. them. And so this place represents, potentially represents a shift, like I was saying, because now all of a sudden, instead of the cave paintings being very animal-centric and we rely completely on the animals and they are, they are superior to us in a way, this place is almost saying it's, it's now all of a sudden humans are the superior ones. And we right. have figured out, right. ex, you know, all they these rely other, on yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> The T-shapes... That's, that's fascinating. We haven't found the T-shapes so, anywhere. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. My only... Not my only. My first thought on that. Why detail the animals at such a degree and then do a crude T-shaped human form or something like... You know what I mean? Especially if the human is supposed to be the dominant thing. Wouldn't you think maybe they would do more realistic human and... I think... Um, yeah, I know what you mean. More symbolic. Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. I don't maybe because it was harder to you know they weren't michelangelo they couldn't create the statue <laughs> of david you know they didn't have that level yeah so but but i don't know because i'm looking at this picture of the the, the carvings are the, pretty good particularly it's a the carving it's like a lizard thing uh with a big long tail i don't it's not even really a lizard i don't know what the hell that thing is but it's pretty detailed like it's got feet with individual phalanges coming off of it um eyeballs you like that yeah that was good (laughs) it's proper right yes it was (laughs) (laughs) not necessarily fingers not toes i don't know what they are yeah yeah that was great (laughs) um no uh the the human form thing when i first read that i was like what really but yeah, and you're you're right to point out. I mean, I could see that. I I would buy that. It's just I'm the fact that the animals are as detailed as exactly. they are is making me have. No, that's a it's a great point. Um, and I I can't really say one way or the other. Obviously, um, right? Yeah. There are other. We have not found the T shapes anywhere else. Uh, there are a whole bunch of them in like not just on the hill of Gobekli Tepe itself, but uh, we have found others within a few square, I want to say miles, but I'm not, I can't remember. Um, so the T-shapes are, are really unique to this place. Um, mm-hmm. And again, it suggests all of a sudden some society having the extra resources to even do this. And even weirder is, like I was saying, it's it's not a livable place. They would have right. walked... Totally built out of excess. Completely out of excess, exactly. Which... It, you know, like Stonehenge, we know, was built 4,000 years ago. This is another mm-hmm. eight behind right. it. Yes. And Stonehenge, in comparison, is dog shit compared to this. 
terms of like its build. It's complexity. Form. Yeah, Stonehenge is just that's in, oh you know God. if you want to all of a sudden Stonehenge is lame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stonehenge has no carvings in it or nothing like nothing like this. Right. No. So again, just true. the the running theme here is that all of a sudden, like just this bright spot of information this thing just shows, thing up. Just shows up yep exactly it's just dropped in the middle of what we thought was just the ether of hunter-gatherer society where there was no records there was no you know right we just, we just assumed up until now that nothing of I, you know I'm, I'm whitewashing it a little bit but nothing of significance was happening basically and that is just mm-hmm. appears not to be the case you may have said this already but and I'm sorry if you did, but did, what was the one thing or series of things that made them realize how old this actually is? Like, how did they determine Primarily that? radiocarbon dating. Okay. Yeah. Um, Got it. So, let's see. There's just so much to talk about. It's hard to... I was really... I, I must have gone over my notes like four or five times trying to find a like a a narrative thread through like a yeah path, a path exactly and it, I, <laughs> yeah i didn't obviously i didn't come up with a good um let's see so we we would have we have no idea there's just no indications of anything about the people themselves nope. like who could have done nope. this there's just nothing so to kind of try to put this into some perspective um i guess i'm, I'm coming up with this part on the fly um you know genghis khan i'll just he was 1200 uh like 1225 so 800 years ago yeah not that not long. that long ago at all <laughs> All of a sudden at least yeah, right in this context <laughs> yeah yeah so like genghis khan who we don't like we don't know where genghis khan was buried and they obviously they, they made sure to hide that fact that was a point that they did but like just to sort of illustrate like we know certain things about the Mongols and and that time, but right. ultimately we really don't know that much. Right. So, r- roll back the clock another eleven thousand two hundred years, <laughs> and now we know we nothing. know nothing. Um, yeah. yeah, that's crazy. It's like the longest game of te- like the longer the game of telephone goes, exactly. the worse the original message gets. <laughs> So, a few other things on the place itself, like to build this place would have been incredibly complex because if it's not a livable place, that means all the people that were there had to be housed, water probably had to be brought to the place, you had to feed all these people. This is not a, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stress the fact that this, as you said, you put it, you really put it well, completely built out of excess, like nothing. So... But let's say that, do we know that the environment was this arid when it was built? No, it would have been much more lush. Right. Yeah. So, kind of like there would have been stuff around for sure. Yeah. But, you know, was there a river running right by this hill? Probably not. Or at least you wouldn't think so. Uh, Because at least the tigers from Euphrates, they've been there, we, you know, for, I mean, that that river's oldest time, I guess. Um, Yeah. So it's just, it's, this whole place is so perplexing and there's so many things about it. And so we can, we can start getting to some of the connections. It, it starts 
fitting in with other pieces of evidence to where if you want to get really crazy like it's it's possible that this is only a small representation of like what this civilization was capable of so i get we'll get into um there's a uh randall carlson i know you know that name oh yeah yeah Yeah, i know the name so he's this guy and this other guy graham hancock um are sort of the two guys that have been talking about this a lot and klaus schmidt is the guy who's been digging up gobekli tepe they have been um talking about this thing called well there's a period in time called the younger dryas and what we can tell we we've taken ice cores from greenland we pulled the ice cores mm-hmm. out from the ice sheet. And through various methods, we can see temperature changes in the ice. And so they've mapped out. Okay. They've been able to kind of, well, as far as we know, at least, they've been able to map out the average temperature of the world based off of these ice sheets as mm-hmm. really, really far back. Well, funny enough, about 12,000 years ago, things got super, super cold really fast. Oh. And then it happened again about 800, or not 800, uh, shoot, 400? A couple hundred years later, after the first drop, another big drop mm-hmm. happened. And okay. this lasted about... Comp- compounding on the first one? Compounding on the first one. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, in terms of uh, the, the length of human history, these two events are very close to each other. And then the whole mm-hmm. cold period lasts... Uh, I think 1,200 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so this would this have wiped them out? Is that well? So the the prevailing theory is that um, there's this comet that would have uh, passed by, and the fragments of this comet appear to have hit the Earth, and so it's possible that we had we would have had groups of humans all over the Earth. We think at least by this point, and Maybe only one of them has, and the the, pe- and the, the people who've built Gobekli Tepe had gotten to a point previously unheard of. Like, they would have been absolute, the, the smartest and, and the best around. But they were relying on, at this point, their agriculture and, and everything else. And when this uh, comet fragments hit and the world plunged into... Um, really really cold temperatures for a while you know a thousand years um they were not able to survive where the hunter gatherers basically civil society disintegrated and we went back to hunter gatherer uh methods because we just now had Mm -hmm. to start roaming and and basically adapt to whatever we could and so it's possible like i was saying earlier that we had this incredibly adept society that was wiped out by a cataclysmic event mm-hmm. and then we're lost basically lost to history until now and so some of the connections are the stone carvings you're looking at those are basically the original egyptian hieroglyphics it is entirely plausible that the egyptian language is based off of these pillars not maybe not directly off of these pillars but the ancient civilizations of Egypt basically got, we thought that they came up with it 
it's very possible mm-hmm. that they got their information from these people, whoever these people were. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're looking. Which actually, if you want to get real crazy, you could you could actually potentially based on you know the fact that maybe even the start of the Egyptian stuff is earlier. Maybe they both got it from the same something True. else. Yep. Um, not not impossible at this point. No. Right? I don't know if you still got the pictures up, but uh, one of the pillars has. Yep. Uh, do you see one of the pillars has like what looks like handbags, three handbags going across the top of it? Three handbags. Uh, I'm just on the Wikipedia page, so I don't. Oh, know okay, maybe not. There. Well, the handbag symbol. It, it it's a square with a you know it looks like a like a briefcase with a large arch handle. Look at it. that symbol is all over oh I see it now that symbol is all over the ancient world what do you mean the ancient world way outside of just the local fertile crescent like that symbol shows up not not 12,000 years ago much later in history or sooner relative to us but that appears to be the first instance of this symbol that we have already found in so many other archaeological places across the world. So it's almost really? like we found the letter A. We've been finding the letter A on rocks that we think are 4,000 years old. And all of a sudden we found the letter A on a rock that's 12,000 years old. It's basically what that's like. Right. Damn. Okay. <laughs> Another wild thing. Um, that's insane. Another wild thing is... Uh, the story of Atlantis, which I, I, I imagine most people are, are kind of familiar with. Um, there's this really ancient, prosperous city, and somehow it fell into the sea. Right. The reason we know about it is uh, from Plato, the Greek uh, philosopher. He learned of it from, at, even for his time, thousands of years old history. You know, he was obviously around for it. When was Plato around? Ooh, uh, shit. What's his time period? Do you know? Not off the top. Hang on. Uh, here's his Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, about 2,500 years ago. 348 BC. Okay. We're talking about 12,000 BC right now. Right, right. So we, we so, know of Atlantis from... Uh, we were lucky enough to get two... Uh, writings of his Timaeus it's called and what was the other one Timaeus and um shit there's another name I can't remember and in these two many you know translated many times at this point uh Plato recounts the story that he was told about the lost city of Atlantis mm-hmm. guess where in the timeline he puts the lost city of Atlantis about 12,000 12, years? 12, years ago. Well, for, for us, us. Yeah, currently. What, eight for him? Yeah. And um, so that all lines up with the whole comet thing. There was this civilization that was able to build a city that ancient Greeks were, you know, in awe of. Mm-hmm. And it was destroyed by some ridiculous event. Right, right. So that one to me, whether whether that event is natural or something, yeah. we don't even yeah. know. 
So I'm I'm really fascinated by somebody coming along and burying it. Yeah. So yeah, we could talk a bit about that. Um, so it, well. So how would yeah. it? Sorry. I was I'm, trying to now. Th- I'm yeah. I'm yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thinking back about the the one you just said. So how would he have known? Like, where did he get his information from? I'm, re- I'm forgetting the guy's name. It started with an S. But basically, the story was one the, the destruction of this city was passed down through societies. And eventually, yeah. some guy, his name started with an S, thousands of years before Plato, managed to write the story down. And then okay. that text was around for in ancient Egyptian times. Plato was then able to be aware of it and then we have his writings of it basically gotcha. so we don't even okay. we don't even have the, the yeah, original yeah. um another uh quickly going back to the sorry, let me before we get to the burial part um the extinction of the megafauna which are like the giant sloths and the mammy uh, the woolly mammoths and all that mm-hmm I mean, we got a theme here. Guess when? Uh, guess when that happened? About twelve thousand years ago. About twelve thousand years. And the prevailing uh, theory up until nowish was that, and it, it sounds so silly when you when I'm about to say this out loud, but we totally this is this was the thought. Basically, in what would have had to have been just a couple of years, like maybe a decade. The theory was that mm-hmm. hunter-gatherer humans were able to kill every single woolly mammoth within a decade. That was that was the prevailing theory that humans were the cause of the megafauna extinction event, which is not disputed. the The death of the megafauna is not a disputed thing. That definitely happened. Interesting. But our explanation for it. Oh, the fact. Okay. Yeah, that definitely okay. happened. Everybody, at least most people, I assume, that are knowledgeable in in the subject, agree that that happened. And then the theory for its explanation was that we humans, hunter-gatherers, did that. And when you really break it down, that's kind of absurd that little old humans were able to wipe out who knows how many woolly mammoths. And not right. just woolly mammoths. In a decade? In about a decade. Yeah, maybe 20 years, two decades. Uh, not just woolly mammoths, but all the other giant mammals. So... You know, when you put it into that context, it does sound ridiculous, and so yeah. So there, there were a lot of other mammal or uh, woolly mammoth like. There were literally the like you know the three toed sloth. Take yeah. that and blow it up like ten times. Ten. Giant versions. Yeah, of everything? yeah, yeah. Huge, huh. huge birds. Huge. Uh, you know, this is obviously well past the time of the dinosaurs. Um, so we're talking about what do you call it? Mega megafauna. Yep. It's a whole spinoff okay. if we... <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't even know that was a term. Save that for later. Okay. Um, huge mammals. And when the what uh, appears to be a comet fragments hit, they, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, their, their uh, food supply, they, just, they were not able to survive at all. Because the right. world plunged into... Um, I mean, the average temperature dropped so fast like you know global or climate change you know we we have like that two uh two degrees celsius yeah i want to say the drop was like 20 degrees or something like that or 10 whoa it's like completely changed yeah totally 
so yeah so again gobekli tepe was like where i started but this whole conversation is that it seems more and more not even just plausible to me i, I mean I, I believe it it I'm, I'm a believer i suppose i'm a bit biased um that there's this basically truly a lost civilization like that I forgot to mention, Gobekli Tepe is oriented. They knew astronomy. It's north-south oriented perfectly. Yep. Really? I forgot to mention that. Whoa. So we're not... And, and again, they were able... So I said it already, but you know, we were racking our heads around the pyramid and how they built that. You know, who in the world... They were using flint... We have found flint tools in uh, Gobekli Tepe. This is all, and all, it's another thing. It's kind of weird, though. This is all pre-pottery age, too. Pottery doesn't, in terms of when Gobekli Tepe was built, pottery's a couple yeah. thousand years off. Like, yeah. Right. Okay. At least as far as we currently understand. We haven't found any pottery in Gobekli Tepe. If we did... I was going to say we haven't. No, we haven't. That, and yeah. that would be, I mean, that, that, okay. would be, that would be intense if that happens. Yeah, really? I mean, that, that means that that changes, that changes everything. You know, we're we're pretty confident when we knew, we, you know, we use pottery as like a really big, uh, like a landmark, yeah, exactly, a, a milestone in human development. Yeah, and if that gets yeah. rolled back another couple thousand years, <laughs> start start over. over. <laughs> um, r- real quick about that uh, comet. Um, this is my own personal theory. Uh, you remember a couple episodes we talked? I talked about. Uh, Potentially, there's another planet in our solar system that's way out there. Yeah. It's yeah. possible that the gravity from planet X is what uh, slingshotted the comet towards us. Yeah. Really? What an asshole. Yeah. That's kind of cra- how. How do they determine that, though? Uh, it's just my personal theory. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. sorry. So, uh, yeah. but there, it, it's, I won't go into it, but there is a couple, I, I didn't just come up with that out of the blue. But basically, in yeah. order for a comet to get on the trajectory that would have, you know, the computer models show would have lined up with everything, mm-hmm. you you kind of need a gravitational event to knock it into place. Mm-hmm. So, and that could, and that, yeah, I'm making it up, but, you know, that could have been Planet X. Sure, I understand. I'll subscribe yeah, to that theory. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, let's see. Um, just another note in comparison we do have a couple of like pieces of structure here and there across the world that are kind of from a similar time like 11,000 10,000 years ago in other places but they are all nothing compared to Gobekli Tepe in terms of complexity so it stands alone like just like yeah what would have survived though are you just more stone structures or yeah basically but like tiny ones yeah yeah, it's like shelter. Yeah, kind of. yeah. Nothing, nothing built out of excess. This is crazy. So, some of the theories. I mean, it, it's it's really hard to tell, but like, it's possible that maybe these people were kind of alone in the Fertile Crescent, and we had all these hunter gatherer societies around. Then the cataclysmic event happens. Then the hunter gatherer societies, after a couple thousand years or whatever, kind of regroup and find Gobekli Tepe kind of like we're finding it now 
and that's it's almost like it's almost like uh Gobekli Tepe this ancient civilization was there doing their thing they get wiped out and then we take a couple thousand years to regroup and then we rediscover even back then or we rediscover ourselves in a way and we get back on track as far as you know if you want to say that like then ancient Egypt springs up and all of a sudden we're back mm. on track to get to where we are today but this cataclysmic event basically put a halt on human development for like 6,000 years right Ooh. yeah it's nutty so um, why it was buried is an interesting is an interesting thing it could be as simple as like you know like when the Mongols came through and wiped out places they just destroyed and, and you know they destroyed all right. kinds of stuff so it could be as simple as that that some society was just like oh this isn't ours so let's let's bury it right let's just get but the problem with that is that it was buried without breaking it. It was, it was, you could argue that it was carefully right. buried. Right. Carefully buried. And there's a lot of area yep. here, yep. right? Like it would, it's like, why would you to... want to do that? Right. Yeah, exactly. So one of the, th- you're basically filling in a mountain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's no small task. Yeah. So it's possible there, humans have a, a bit of history when it comes to like religious, uh, ceremonies and whatnot it's called de-sanctifying to when Mm -hmm. or to where uh if you're no longer going to use a religious site it there's a lot of uh consistency in the human decision to destroy it as part of its like you know it's sacred and if you're not going to use it anymore or you have to move on or whatever it is rather than just leave it to decay you just dispose of it in like a religious Mm -hmm. or i'm sorry a uh ritualistic way that that would make that would fill in a lot of the gaps. So they they didn't want to use it anymore for whatever reason. We don't actually know that reason, mm-hmm. um, or we don't have a guess. Yeah. But they carefully buried it. They didn't want to destroy it, but they also wanted to, in a sense, be rid of it. Gotcha. Um, yeah. yeah, it's possible that it was buried to hide it, basically. Um, but then that one is right. like, why? That's, that's kind of what I keep yeah. thinking. But then why wouldn't you just destroy it if you were trying to hide it? Unless, well, actually, I just thought of why. Yeah, I mean, you have some sort of intention of returning to it. Either that or destroying the stones is a lot of work, than, is more work than just burying it. Maybe burying it's the easier thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it definitely would be easier. I would think. Um And it, I don't know, I guess I keep wondering who, because you're saying that we really have zero evidence between this existence of this thing and then, you know, there's a 6,000 year gap, There's a gap, huge right? gap, yeah, yeah. There's a huge gap, so it's just like... I mean, I should say, we there's a huge gap in the sense of what you would call, like, civil society and the, and the Neolithic age. Like... I'm sure right. we have hunter-gatherer artifacts and like arrowheads and other things that are eight thousand, seven thousand years old. But we have, right. it's it's we have nothing on the level of even close to the level of Gobekli Tepe for thousands of years. Un- you know, until later. Right. Yeah. yeah. Understood. Yeah. I just gotta wonder just how they freaking put it together. 
So, um, funny enough on that, uh, the latest theory, uh, how they built the pyramids is uh, really fascinating. I'll, I'll cover it real fast. Um, in the 70s, someone took a radar scanner into the pyramids to like try to see into the walls. Right. And they did. And they found this like spiral pattern, but they didn't know what to make of it at the time. So they just kind of did away with it. Uh, the spiral... Nobody talked about it. What's that? Nobody Basically, talked about it yeah. for a while. Yeah. Uh, then somebody was like, well, you know, people have been trying to figure out how they build the pyramids forever because we, we can tell from the makeup of the limestone and other things that these blocks were carried sometimes miles away. Like, this is a huge effort, built even more so out yeah. of excess than Gobekli Tepe. Um, some guy basically was like, well, you know, let me, what if they had basically a ramp that... Uh, is part of the pyramid and they just there's basically a, a, a pathway that spirals up the sort of just inside the outer edge of the pyramid well sure enough uh, they haven't actually like found the pathway yet because you can't really just like bust open the pyramids for a lot of reasons uh, but that radar scan from the 70s uh, they, they, they brought it back and it matched the guy's math the guy figured out he he guessed at what the elevation of the slope would be and or the angle of the slope and he guessed all these things about what the ramp would have to be in order to make it doable and the radar scans are part of this and they confirm or, or they, they very much support his theory and uh then the most difficult part was how do they turn the blocks at each corner of the pyramid that was a problem with the math was how do they do that and he proposed that basically the sides of the pyramid, these corners, were some of the last parts to be fit together because they needed mm -hmm. to allow the turning of the stones. And there's a corner of one of the pyramids that you can actually walk up into that has this cavity in it. Like basically they think they found one of the corners of the pathway. Yeah. Oh, really? So... How do they support the pathway? It was just built, or how do they cover the pathway after? I guess is it's still question. there. That's the thing. It's it's if this guy's theory is correct, the 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 spiral ramp that is that they mm -hmm. use to build the pyramid and, and bring stones, you know, you know, level by level up, uh, is it's still there. So you just can't see it because the interior exactly. walls block exactly. everything. Yep, and there's no getting to that outer right. level. Right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Maybe we should just sacrifice one of them and <laughs> dissect it. You know, as as much as I want to say, what if what if it were wrong, and we just destroyed the pyramid for nothing? Right. Yeah. Just we learned nothing from it. I would. I think that'd be a little unreasonable that we would learn. Nothing. Yeah. No. I, I, so. And I mean, it, you know, the radar scan. I personally, I think they should. I, I have to imagine the. The radar technology is better these days. They must be able to just do the scan again, is what I would say. Um, right. It was done in, I want to say, the 70s, like I said. And um, you could just do it again. Yeah, why not? All right. Um, we hit we hit pretty much uh, all the beats I wanted to hit. Um, 
So we can. I don't know if you have any. There's just a. There's a. There's so much possibility here. Just that's yeah, definitely. It's almost hard what to what to ask because it's it's endless. It is. So I guess that some of the takeaways would be some of the indisputable or at least relatively indisputable facts are we are pretty confident how old it is. We okay. just through common sense in a in a way. We know that a it must it had to have been a food producing a Neolithic society. It had to have been because they just you just wouldn't have been able to do it without the cal literally the calories needed right. to build this place. You just couldn't do without domestication of the goat, the cattle, the sheep, and the pig. Um. So no matter what this place. In my opinion, I guess I shouldn't say no matter what. In my opinion, this place definitely represents that. Even if you want to argue the whole, you know, because people disagree with the comet thing and all that. Even if you don't want to go there, civil society seems to have started way, way sooner than we ever thought. And then, un unless we just haven't found it, which is also possible, then it just basically disappeared for like couple thousand years right and so it's obviously it's possible that we just haven't found the sites yet that explain those gaps that's entirely possible sure. but uh yeah. people have been looking <laughs> so sure yeah so how many theories are out there about um it being built by aliens oh tons um, <laughs> it's gotta it's gotta be right yeah, tons. Some alien flew here in a very sophisticated spaceship and then built rock structures. I didn't even get into this, but um, <laughs> there's uh, there's parts about Gobekli Tepe that uh, it's it, it you could definitely start connecting dots that humans were changing their consciousness at this place, like it was a spiritual. You know, they were they were doing DMT and stuff. Yeah, oh, really. Yeah. Like some of the. Well, drawings there's this con there's this concept or? called a uh, a soul stone. And it's basically just a stone circle, um, and they mm -hmm. would orient it perfectly with uh, whatever astrological thing they were interested in, and it was basically like a window. They would get the theories that they would get really high one way or the other, and uh, yeah. look through the soul stone up into the cosmos because they believed uh, the hieroglyphs and whatnot. They, it, it seems like, you know, they thought that these giant birds that existed at the time carried souls up into the sky and all these, you know, they, they interpreted the world to the best that they could. But that's all much more arguable than I was ready to, right. you know, put my name behind. Yeah. You're, you're more about laying down the right. facts about it right, right now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the place, going back to the fact that there's no homes or anything around it, again, it, it was a temple. It was a destination place that you did not live at you you came and left yeah well it's cool to look at some of the like artist renderings of what it could have looked like you know not in disarray right. um so it's it's easy to see how yeah it's like a some sort of monument definitely it's definitely a monument whatever. to something yeah very interesting design <laughs> i'm scrolling through google images was ancient gobekli Tepe built by aliens <laughs> yes, duh. Not sure what else it would have been built by. Um, the um, one last thing: the the excavating structures that seem to be placed around are kind of fascinating. Like all the wood holding things mm -hmm. up, and just like 
what an excavating site looks like, I yeah. guess. It's kind of confusing to look at. Like, it's, yeah, there's a lot going on. It's like there's a, there's an entire like wooden bridge that they have set up temporarily to scaffolding, yep. I see. Interesting. Yeah, Very so interesting. Uh, this is fun. it's it's crazy. So how to what do you recommend to learn more? Listen to Graham Hancock and mm. also did you know that um, the Klaus guy Klaus is his Schmidt. last name. Klaus is yeah, his first name. He's he's, he's dead. Oh he's no! Dead. Oh no! I did not know that. I just twenty fourteen. Oh, his TED talk must have been. Okay, I, I, as part of this, I, I watched... Oh, yeah, he's dead. God damn it. Well, that sucks. <laughs> um, he did a TED Talk that I, I I guess I didn't look at the date, but I assumed it was mm-hmm. far sooner than 2014. Um, yeah. I just couldn't remember if I'd heard him on no, Joe Rogan's no, podcast or no. not. It's the other two guys that have been yeah. on there. Oh, wow, he's only 61. You know, I... I don't mean to talk ill of the deceased, but he looked way older than 61 in his TED Talk. He, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said he had a heart attack, so he probably, maybe he wasn't living his best, uh... His best diet life. Physical life, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I mean, as far as learning more, I mean, Graham Hancock has a... Uh, controversial history Um, but I think part of that is it's been repeated so many times that when somebody comes up with a new idea in the scientific community it's always initially treated with disdain like it's always no one has ever come out with a new idea and everybody's been like yes you got it just on board never happens ever yeah People get stuck in their theories and they dedicate their life to a particular theory. Can you imagine spending 50 years on something and only to find out that some other guy, he figured it out better and you, 50 years of your life has been wrong. So people get very defensive about their work. Oh, yeah. And so the guy Graham Hancock um, definitely has made some enemies. But he he was talking about this stuff in 1995 uh, and... Mm -hmm. New evidence that's been coming out of Gobekli Tepe over the past 30 years has only proven more and more his his uh, his theories. Or supported his, I shouldn't say proven, supported his theories more and more. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so he's, he's definitely interesting. He's also a, a good speaker. He's got a good vo- vocabulary, so he's enjoyable to listen to if, if you uh, are into that kind of thing. Um, that guy Randall, Randall Carlson I talked about. He's really fascinating. He, yeah. he knows a lot about the the Greenland ice cores and a lot of the the climate data, if you will. Um, okay. All right. Cool. I like that. And then I mean, some there. I mean, Klaus Schmidt himself did a bunch of uh, talks and stuff, and you can listen to him um, talk mm-hmm. about some of this stuff. But the thing is, is this all? I mean, they are actively excavating it right now. So. It's it's mm-hmm. all you know. Pay attention over the next ten years, twenty years, and we might learn something sweet. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah, exciting, it's really actually. exciting. All right. Good yeah. topic. Good topic. All right. Uh, let's see. Instagram. Wandering. Yeah, Berry Wandering Center. Berry Center. Right. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, um, all the regular places. 
And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. That's our show. Thanks, everybody.